You're listening to an episode of Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge, the podcast dedicated to honest conversations with educators about what they do and, more importantly, who they are. I'm your host, John LeMay, and I'm here to highlight the complex and rich lives led by teachers with diverse interests, identities, and stories. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in for this week's episode, which features Sarah Koppelkamp, an English teacher at a charter school in North Carolina and co-host of the Cobblecast. Sarah and I speak about the ways in which Sarah's love of learning wasn't always nurtured in high school and how she's been able to regain that through teaching. We also discuss Sarah's experiences as a queer educator, and we talk about the negative misconceptions many have about today's youth. As I already mentioned, Sarah is the co-host of her own podcast, The Cobblecast, which recently wrapped up its first season. I highly recommend that you check that out and subscribe because it's a really fantastic podcast that focuses on what it means to examine and empower today's youth. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review the podcast and check us out on Facebook. And please send us an email if you have any feedback or recommendations for future guests. You can get in touch with us at welcome to the teachers lounge at gmail.com. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Sarah. Sarah Cobblecam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, John. So what I want you to do uh, to start things off is go back to your first day of school, by which I mean I want you to think about your first day of full-time teaching, and I want you to tell me as much as you can remember from that. Okay. Oh my God. It's really cruel of you to ask people to relive this moment. You know that, right? I know. Well, I'm a glutton for punishment, so I assume that other people are (laughs) glutton for punishment as well. So So I, my first day of full-time teaching was only a year and a half ago um, because I'm in my second year of teaching. And what I remember, I feel like I don't remember very much at all because you sort of, you, you sort of black out, you know, it's like, right. <laughs> you, you just make it through. Um, I remember I was having my juniors do some like ridiculous, like getting to know you game where they like stood on one side of the room for one, like, do you like chocolate ice cream? Do you like vanilla ice cream? Stand on, you know, whatever side of the room represents your opinion. And my whole idea behind that was that they're going to be sitting all day on the first day of school. Everybody goes over their syllabus and I wanted to do something that like got them out of their seats. Um, But what I would later learn about this specific junior class is that they're super um, resistant to doing any kind of anything that gets them out of their comfort zone at all. Even like talking about like ice cream? Yeah, like even like having to stand up, like they're just, they're, they're, I love them dearly. They're my first, they will be my first class of graduating seniors, but they're just really kind of cynical and like, they're always like, oh, Miss Cobblekin, why are you making us do this? So had I known that, I might have chosen to do something less like, um, I don't know, elementary with them. Sure. But in the middle of that, I remember my principal walking in and he, I was like, oh, like, Mr. Brian, really, on my first day, you're going to come into my classroom. And he was like, I'm just going into everyone's classroom. But I felt so nervous. Right. It was like one of those moments when you're just like, oh, my God, I have no idea what I'm doing. Right. Where am I? Who am I? The first in a long line of moments like that. Oh, my God. Yeah. And also, like, it's worth noting that I'm 25 and was 24 when I started. And so 11th grade students are only like six years younger than me. Right. 
So, of course, they're already sizing you up and you feel super self-conscious of that, which I'm sure you also have experienced. Yes. And I still experience, I should say that. Yeah. So so when, when you were like doing this activity, could you like, could you read the room pretty quickly? And did you discover like after you ruled it out and got to started that like this wasn't, this wasn't going to work for these kids or it wasn't a, wasn't really a hit? Yeah. I mean, yes, but I think it was, oh God, I don't even know. I hate reliving this. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think I'm it, kind of sorry. No, it's please. I think um, in moments like those, often we're much harder on ourselves than the kids. Like, I'm sure not a single child in that class remembers what they did on the first day of my 11th right. grade, like English class. I'm sure they have no idea. Well, I was actually talking with someone about this recently, um, because like on that first day, like they're going through so much and there's so many different variables Mm-hmm. Like in terms of like they are there, you know, getting to know all these like all the kids that are going to be in their classes or they're yeah. getting to know like five, six, seven teachers. Yeah. And so they have so many moments, whereas you're really just looking at them like as a whole. Like mm-hmm. this is what my experience was like with one of my whatever, four or five classes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I've realized that has sort of um, made it more made it easier to kind of deal with feeling humiliated all the time as a teacher is that most of the time kids are preoccupied with their social lives and their stress levels and like all this interpersonal crap that they're dealing with as teenagers and you're actually just like this tiny like sliver of their life which is kind of um helpful to realize in a lot of ways yeah yeah it takes a lot of the pressure off and it kind of lowers the stakes in some cases but it also is bad for my ego because like come on i want to be the most important <laughs> right right um, on one hand yeah you're kind of like you're feeling you're like no you're feeling to hurt but you're like wait a minute no i want them to I'm really the be bothered important. by this yeah like i want them to be thinking about this stupid thing that i said what do you yeah. mean they they forgot it the second yeah, after i said it. exactly and then of course the things they do remember you're like no that's not yes. i don't want that to be the thing you remember yeah. Yeah. So as far as how would you characterize like that day overall? Like, would you say it was good, bad, somewhere in between? Yeah, I would say it was like thrilling. Really? Yeah. I, like In uh, a good way or a bad way? In a really good way, because I think I felt that I was, I had found a place that was going to work really well for me. And I was really nervous and unsure of myself, but I was excited to kind of keep plugging ahead with it. That's and awesome. I remember sweating a lot. Sure, sure. I am in North Carolina, so, you know. Well, so do you think that having started not right out of college helped at all with that? Or do you think you would have had a similar experience? Yeah, so I took, I had a year in between college and starting teaching. So it's not like I had years and years of not teaching. But um, the other thing is that I was substitute teaching in the year before I started full-time teaching. Not at the same school, but at another similar school. And during that time, I ended up long-term subbing for someone who was out on medical leave. So that was a really nice way to ease into teaching because I started off just substitute teaching and then I had a class that I was with for like three or four months and really kind of was their teacher. And that kind of experience was really helpful because I felt much more confident going into the classroom as a full-time teacher. I I didn't study education and I'm always kind of blown away by people who like studied education and didn't really do anything else and then just like pop into a classroom immediately after graduating college and just like hit the ground running that sounds terrifying and have yeah but also it seems like ideally you have like this toolbox of things that you've 
learned ideally i don't know i also didn't i've never taken an education class yeah, in my life so i have like an ideal of what that must look like but i don't actually know do you have an inferiority complex about that because i definitely do sometimes i also think there are huge advantages to not having done that but sometimes i feel like i should have i feel more of an inferiority when it comes to people who have like master's degree and degrees in education sure those just strike me as things like that i don't know are more I don't want to say worthwhile, but just things that give you more things that are more applicable. Mm-hmm. I yeah, but I I don't oftentimes, I don't oftentimes feel that with people who studied education in college because I've also just heard from a lot of people, and again, I'm totally generalizing here. I have a yeah. very small sampling size, but I've heard from a lot of people who did study education in college that it didn't help as much as they wish it had. No, but I that don't, probably yeah. varies. It varies probably program to program and depending right. on what school. Right. Well, you're also at a private school and I'm at a public school. And I think like because of that, I'm around a lot more people who come from a much more traditional education background where they went to school for it and then did um, did student teaching. And um, I always feel like sort of an outsider, I guess, maybe not inferior, but kind of like, I don't know, like I snuck in the back door. (laughs) Right. Oh, yeah. It's that whole imposter imposter oh, complex. Yeah. Oh yeah. But I want to go back a little bit to when like the moment when you realized that you wanted to be a teacher. Yeah, I I think the like asking the moment I realized that is I I don't know that I can answer that, but I can kind of point to a time and a feeling. So it's def- really works. it's definitely at ASP, which is where you and I met. Right. Um so, so the advanced studies program at St. Paul's school. Yes. So Technically, you and I met when we were students there, but we didn't really know each other. That's true. Um, so I was a teaching intern there in 2014, I think. Uh, do you want to just describe like what that program yeah, is so for, it, our, for our listeners? It's a um, it's a six week summer program at St. Paul's School in Concord, New Hampshire, um, my hometown. And St. Paul's is Go, a... Uh, what's, what, what are your... Oh, my your, God. What's your mascot? No, it's terrible. It's the Crimson Tide. Like, Go the, Crimson the worst Tide. school mascot of all time. Just so many yeah, menstrual bloods, blood jokes to be made. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so St. Paul's is, a, is an elite private boarding school in Concord, which I did not go to. But they do this really cool thing where they open up their doors for six weeks in the summer to public school students from all throughout the state who get to get the opportunity to take classes that they wouldn't maybe otherwise get to take. So things like astronomy or um, ancient Greece. And so they've got this great teaching intern program where you work with a master teacher to help uh, facilitate a class. So my first summer there, I was in the studio art class. And then my second summer as an intern, I was in the writing workshop class that they run. And you were you were an art major in college? I double in majored in English and painting, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So I think the the moment I realized I wanted to be a teacher was probably not during that first summer that I was a teaching intern at ASP, though I knew that I liked working with teenagers and it was really fun. Um, teaching art, I think, is not something ultimately that I would want to do and didn't want to do while I was doing it. But it was the second summer when I was in writing workshop with Sarah Erdman was my master teacher. And she's just this incredible, um, incredible educator. And we just sat around all day having great conversations with kids about texts and working on them, working on their writing with them. Um, 
to show you how small this world is, uh, Sarah Erdman was actually my master teacher when I was a student there for my writing workshop class. Yeah, so it's yeah. Like this so very weird world that we live in. We get we get the pleasure of getting back with these amazing humans summer after summer when we when we go there. Yeah, so I think that summer probably was the summer that I started to think, oh, this could be, and but even then I wasn't sure because I had this deep resentment as an English and art major of every time someone would say, oh, you're an English and art major, so you're going to be a teacher? And I'd right. be like, no, I'm going to be no um, a famous author slash painter slash whatever the right. hell else I want to do. Um, I'm going to be a publisher slash a curator. Right, exactly. All jobs that I applied to, right? Right. <laughs> um, so I, I think, I, I guess it took graduating and moving to North Carolina without really a plan and bartending and like working all these jobs to realize that I really like the purpose and fulfillment that being in the classroom gives me. Why did you move to North Carolina? I moved to North Carolina on a whim. Um, a friend of mine took a job at Duke University down here in the Triangle and she had a space in her apartment. And I said, okay, because I didn't have anything else lined up after graduation. And it's been a great decision. That's awesome. Yeah. I, f I have found personally that the first year after college um, is really difficult along mm -hmm. with like the first year of just like being in a new place mm -hmm. um, where you don't really have any roots. And for me, that was also combined with the first year of teaching. Oh, my God. Um, yeah. But did, did you find like that first year out was difficult because of that kind of like that cocktail of experiences or was it a fairly positive, pleasant experience for you overall? Um, it was difficult in moments. I think I'm a person who really thrives on change. So I really liked being in a completely new place and the opportunity to kind of reinvent myself. I also am not a person who really loved college. Like I mm. really loved my education and I learned so many things, but as kind of a deeply introverted person who absorbs the emotions of everyone around me, the high stress environment of, of college was um, kind of unbearable for me at times. So I found that I was immediately much happier after I graduated. You were ready for some relief. Yes, and I love being an adult and like being able to do whatever I want. It's yeah. so, I always tell my students, I'm like, guys, being an adult is great. And they're like, ugh, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> no more rules, no more parents, it's great. <laughs> exactly. Well, so that, that goes really well into my next question, which is um, what, what were you like as a student? And I'm interested, like kind of whatever jumps out, whether it's mm -hmm. middle school, high school, college, all of it. I mean, you've touched a little bit on college, but yeah, yeah I'm interested in like the trajectory of you as a, as a student. I feel like I went through many evolutions as a student and the kind of overriding theme was that I really loved learning, but there were times when I was more connected with that love of learning. And there were times that I was really disconnected from that love of learning. Um, as a as a little kid, I was just like the hugest nerd, you know, like reading books all the time, like I really loved school, really loved learning. Um, and then of course you get to middle school and it's like, you have to figure out how to grapple with that and also try to be cool. Um, right. And so at some point in there, I sort of disconnected from that part of myself, um, was always a really, I guess, high achieving student and very like, my parents didn't pay attention to my education at all in terms of like my grades and such. So I Because they didn't have to? Probably because they didn't have to and also because they my my older brother and I both have like very different um 
takes, like, he really struggled in school, but they were able to find value in the things he was good at. And I was always really good at school. And they were like, that's great, but you don't have to, you know. Yeah. I'm really lucky in that regard. But regardless, I still wanted to get straight A's because I was a perfectionist. And so I was always a really good student. But when I look back on my high school years in particular, I think they're characterized by a, a big lack of integrity. I remember a lot of like copying and um, like just not really doing, you know, not, not doing the reading that was assigned. Um, definitely like more focused on my social life than school. And I think that's probably one of my biggest regrets was, was not really being engaged in a true learning experience in high school. But I also think that that's informed a lot of who I am now as an educator because I've really dug into what it is that makes students lack integrity in their academic achievements and what is it that makes them want to authentically engage with learning rather than just checking the boxes and getting it done. Yeah. And that's been really rich for me. So I think, I guess in that way, it's good that I kind of was a little, uh, can I swear on this podcast? You can, you can swear. I was yeah. going to say a, yeah. a little shithead in high school. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I'm not going to say that we all were in some aspects because I don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely think that many of us were uh, shitheads in, yeah. in some aspects. Well, and it makes me sad when I think back on my high school self to think that I was so worried about achieving and grades and like doing all these things. And I didn't even really know why I was so worried about them, but I was. Yeah. And then I deprived myself of this real love of learning that I've always had. It took me a long time to reconnect with that. I really feel kind of like even through college, I was recovering that love of learning, but it wasn't until after college that I really felt fully reconnected with that. Do you feel that being a teacher is helping you do that? Or that you're kind of in the process of doing that still? Yeah, I think being a teacher has definitely helped me to, you know, I read so much more now than I did when I was in school. And I constantly am thinking about big questions that are exciting to me. So I think having the opportunity to shape a classroom space where that's that's enacted every day has been huge in that process. Yeah, one, it sounds like you probably draw on your experiences as a student and thinking about what what didn't work for you or exactly. what created that environment in which you were just so focused on the wrong things mm-hmm. in exactly. some ways. Yeah. So that also leads very well into my next question, which is how do we um, how do we fail our students as educators or when do we fail our students as educators? You know, I mean, I think we I think we fail our students as educators in many small ways every day all the time. But the the way you framed that question to ask how we fail our students as educators, I'm sort of resistant to because I think um, the better question is how does our education system fail us as educators and our students? Um, Great. Yeah. That's answer that please. (laughs) Because I think um, our education system fails our students by grading them and ranking them and um, overburdening them with tedium and busy work um, and not giving them opportunities to be creative, you know, all these ways. But I also think our education system fails our teachers by um, creating a system where we feel really, um, we don't feel emboldened or encouraged to really dig into how we want to approach our teaching practice. And I think a lot of teachers 
are really scared to try new things and to step outside the box and to take risks with their students. Um, even if they, and I've seen this a lot with colleagues, you know, even if they have a gut feeling that they should be doing something differently or that something's not working, there's so much fear that stands in the way of that. So I don't know. I mean, I think as individuals, teachers fail all the time, students fail all the time, but I think the education system is what is really to blame for all of that. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I, I think that the way I frame that question is probably informed by my status as like as a private school teacher mm -hmm. who just isn't, I'm just not beholden to the same types of standards as many other teachers are. I mean, in yeah. some ways I am, absolutely. And like the way that our education system is built just in general is mm -hmm. obviously going to inform the way that private schools are yeah. built. Um, but I think I kind of have the, the privilege in some sense of being able to really just focus on ways in which I am failing my students mm -hmm. or that the way my students are performing is a reflection of what I'm doing in the classroom, not solely what I'm doing in the yeah. classroom. Um, but there just aren't as many factors, I guess. Yeah. Um, which, I, again, that's a big, I have a lot of privilege in that sense, that that's something yeah. I can focus on and not have to worry about all this other stuff. Yeah, um, and I will say that I'm in a similar position. I'm at, I'm actually at a charter school, and my administration is really wonderful and gives us a lot of freedom. Um, can you, sorry, can, can you define like what a charter school is sort of for like the, sure. I don't know, the, the lay person. So I will say that when I started working at my charter school, I really didn't know anything about charter schools. Um, literally a charter school is, is a school that was started within the public education system, um, with a charter, with a document that, um, lays out what that school will do and why that school is different or, you know, there's a need for that school outside of what the normal public school system can provide. So, for example, our school's charter states that our school is a quote-unquote college preparatory school, which I sort of laugh at because I think, like, most schools are now, nowadays. Right. Um, but that's... Yeah we're, yeah, we're not in the business of preparing our kids for college. <laughs> right. We actually don't right. like to do that. <laughs> right. But that's, um, that's, that's what it is. So you have a document that says what your, what your charter will accomplish. And What's interesting to me is that you're pretty beholden to what that document says. Even, you know, my school is, I think, 19 years old now. Um, but certain things that are in our charter, such as, like, how we admit students, uh, for us it's on a random lottery basis. And we'd really like to weight that for socioeconomic status to increase diversity at our school. But because that's not in our original, original charter, it's really difficult to do things like that. So, um, yeah, charter schools our schools that kind of step outside the public system based on a specific charter and um, still get some public funding, but not nearly as much. Um, and there's like a whole political political side to charter schools that we could talk about that I've learned more and more about. But basically my specific charter school is a pretty, um, we get a lot of freedom as educators because we're not kind of in the traditional public um, public school system. Um, I'm also interested in what you do outside of the classroom. You mentioned the Diversity Alliance, um, and then I know that you also are working on developing uh, a sex ed curriculum. Yeah, so I am really passionate about, um, I guess how I would define it right now is working with kids, working with youth activists and helping to create a space where they can engage with that activism. Um, 
So I created, after, after the election last year, I created the Diversity Alliance at, at our school um, as a place to learn about and engage with activism around race, um, sexuality, gender, um, ability and disability, mental illness, you know, the whole gamut. Um, and that's been really wonderful. And I think, I guess the, the big uh, lesson in that work has been how to step back and let youth, let the kids kind of take the lead in activism and in, in their learning process around that, which when it's a topic that I'm so passionate about, topics that I'm so passionate about, that's hard to do. Um, and then the sex ed is something that I've always, something that I've always loved is sex education, but it's <laughs> definitely something that I've been engaged with for a long time. Um, in college, I did a program called ASHA, which was Adolescent Sexual Health Awareness, and we went into schools and taught. And I just always found it really exciting to be able to create spaces where teenagers could talk about something that, you know, they all want to talk about realistically and like yeah. talk about all the time with their friends. Um, and then when I started teaching in the public school system here in North Carolina, the, the sex ed's completely abysmal. Um, we had, in what sense? We, I mean, the kids, most of the kids will get maybe one or two days of sex education throughout their entire K through 12 career until very recently our school like sort of accidentally was teaching an abstinence only curriculum. Um, North Carolina only, I think it was like 2012 maybe that they um, took out of their, their legislation around sex ed that it had to be abstinence only. So like only very recently has it, has it switched over. So wow. um, yeah, and we're in a state that's really polarized in terms of I mean, as all of America is, but... I right, think... but North Carolina has, for a while now, been kind of like... It's like very purple, yeah. right? Yeah, and we see that a lot in my school because I'm um, in Chapel Hill, sort of on the border of a more rural area. And so we have quite a combination of extremely liberal families and then extremely conservative families. And it's something we're always grappling with. Um, so the way to approach sex ed at our school has been this huge topic of conversation, but I just grow increasingly frustrated with the idea that we're graduating kids who are insufficiently educated, um, in sexual health, in relationships and communication and consent, and then sending them off to college where we know that statistically a vast number of young women will be sexually assaulted within their first month. Right. Um, so I'm, um, myself and an, another, a few other colleagues actually have really been looking into ways to combat that. And what we found is that there is so much research and work that has already been done around sexual health and education for teenagers. I mean, the amount of research backed programming that's out there is just huge. The problem is implementing it. And so, um, I think the, the place where we're at kind of at with it right now is we need to do this. We're going to do it. And if parents, you know, have a problem with it, we'll confront that. But it's just too, um, it's too important to deprive our students of. Yeah. Absolutely. And with that, I'm also really passionate about, um, LGBTQ and sexual diversity within, within sex ed curriculums and was actually just able to pilot a, a sort of mini course for eight weeks with a group of 10 students where we really focused on seeing if we could get LGBTQ 
inclusive sex ed to those students and what that might look like. Wow, that's incredible. That was really cool. That was really cool. Can you talk about your experience as a queer teacher? Yeah, I can. Um, So I identify as queer or bisexual. um, And I think where that comes up in teaching has a lot to do with gender performance. So I definitely play with my gender performance in front of my students. I am a woman with short hair, which, you know, is just wild <laughs> right. apparently in this world. Even these um, days. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, I have really embraced like dressing um, in a very masculine manner and then in a very feminine manner and sort of like showing both sides of myself to my students. Um, which I, I view as a really powerful thing. I think if I had had a, a teacher who did that in high school, it would have been really formative. Um, I always feel a little narcissistic being like, the way that I dress really matters, but no, I but... think that's a cool thing to be able to enact. Yeah, well, it's it's recognizing what it means to have an educator who you identify with in some ways or just kind mm-hmm. of like stretches your definition of what it means to right. be you know, masculine yeah. or feminine or, or anything. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And and we we started a um we started a monthly holiday. Really I started it. I forced it upon my kids. Um, <laughs> Dapper Day is the third Thursday of every month and we all wear like suits and bow ties and it's great. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that's one way and then as far as my sexuality, I mean, you know, you don't necessarily like talk about well, I guess it depends on who you are, but um as a single person in my early 20s, I'm always kind of navigating how much of my personal life do I reveal to my students? Um, yeah. But I think small things, like when I talk about like someone I'm dating, I usually use they, them pronouns. Um, and so I'll say, you know, this person I'm dating or this person I used to date. And not that I'm trying to like drive them crazy with the ambiguousness of it, but <laughs> also just dropping in things like my ex-girlfriend or my ex-boyfriend. And, and I think... Um, and then, of course, if I'm asked directly, which I have been, I will happily talk about my my sexuality. But um, just kind of modeling, like, yeah, this is my life, and it's totally normal, I guess, is yeah. the way that I navigate it. Um, and I have found that I have a lot of students who are bisexual, which is kind of a marginalized sexuality, I would say, who have then felt yeah. comfortable approaching me with questions about that, which I think is great. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I would imagine that you probably feel that sense of not conflict, but I, I guess it's kind of a conflict of how much to share with your students just because you as a person, like you, I, you've always struck me as someone who's like very willing like to share yeah. yourself with people and like Absolutely. you're very vulnerable. Um, and I'm curious about your experience just as someone like that, like as, as a teacher, because there, oh I, I was always told like that it's just so important that as an educator that you really put up that screen yeah. and that there is just, you really make clear like the lines between your public life and your personal life. Sorry, your, yeah, your, your public private, self and yeah. your private self. Yeah. And I think that there's something to be said for that, but a lot of people who have communicated that to me are not particularly forthright or vulnerable, vulnerable people in general. In the way that just we like as a society tend to like you know we caution people about like oversharing or we caution people about like you know what is okay to talk about yeah um oh my god it's you so just tough. are someone who just doesn't really i don't think you see the world that way yeah it's so tough i will tell you i, I think out of everything that i question on a daily basis this is the thing that i struggle with the most um 
you know, the school environment that I work in is in general a place that probably is a little less formal than a lot of schools, just because it's a small school and it's a very close community. Um, and, you know, like things like giving students rides home from school, which would be frowned on in other places, are totally kosher where I work. So um, that's one part of it. But I think also you're right that in my own life, I'm a person who kind of is an open book. And so mm-hmm. navigating that as I've come into education has been really difficult. Um, I think I definitely put up more boundaries when I first started, but I've learned now how to reveal things that I think are appropriate as a way of connecting with students. Um, and I also, I think have thought a lot about how to be flawed in front of my students because as a kid who was really um, perfectionistic and ultimately was led to a lot of really serious mental illness by that. I think seeing examples of adults who you admire who can also be like imperfect and not have it all together is really important. So as hard as it is for me to do, I really try to be a flawed person in front of my students in an authentic way. Can you talk about what that looks like, like being flawed or imperfect in front of your students? Yeah, like I guess being honest about... um, Uh, Like when things aren't, you know, when I don't have it together, like I have before, like walked into class and said, listen, we were going to do this thing today, but I'm having a really bad day. You guys are tired too. Let's just, let's just like read silently or, um, you know, even just small stuff, like acknowledging that I'm 25 and don't have my life together and then laughing about (laughs) it with my students. Like I frequently will forget my lunch and I'm like, ugh. God, I don't have anything to eat. Does anybody have any snacks? <laughs> um, and you know, which it's so crazy because that's so that should not be a radical thing to do, but it feels like it because there yeah. is, yeah. there's just like that pressure of just like sustaining this illusion of of having it togetherness. Right, right, and I think that's doubly that's doubly um, the pressure is there doubly for me as a woman and as an educator because there's all this yeah. pressure on women to kind of like constantly have this perfect balance and then to be an educator and also feel the pressure to really have it all figured out. Um, and the reality is I, I probably actually have more figured out than my students sometimes think, but I think, um, (laughs) creating a classroom where they really feel like they're in charge of their education and that I'm not just lecturing at them is really important to me. But you know, like my ego just struggles with it all the time because I'm like, well, I want them to think I'm perfect and smart and great at everything. And then there's this other voice that's like, no, your authenticity is more important than anything else you could do in a classroom because that's what they will remember. So I try to let that voice win out, but, um, you know, the other one's there too. Yeah. But I just think, I, I, I guess one of my biggest things is that I think teenagers can tell, kids can tell when adults aren't being authentic. And so I just try to show up as authentically as I can and... I think that's kind of all anyone can do. Yeah, absolutely. A big part of what you, I know you do as an educator is just this idea of, and you've talked about it already, but just this idea of like empowering your students and empowering youth. And we'll talk about, we'll talk about the podcast Mm -hmm. um, soon. Okay. But I know that's just like a big part of your, of, of your vocation. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm, I'm struck by what you just said about like the fact that our students can tell like they can tell when we're not being authentic mm-hmm. and they can actually tell a lot of things and they can tell a lot more like than what we 
think they can tell and they're just in a sense like they're a lot smarter than we think they are yes. um where where did that definition of of what it means to be an educator like where did that come from for you this idea of like empowering youth i don't know i've thought about this a lot because i'll frequently get you know I think a lot of teachers get this question of, did you have a teacher who really inspired you or where does your teaching practice come from? And I had a lot of really great teachers, but who I was as a teenager was someone who didn't want to connect with adults. And I viewed authority as this very um, static and important boundary that I never wanted to cross. And so, you know, when I had friends who would like joke around and be friendly with teachers, that to me was odd and I didn't know how to do that. And I think... Um, I think I, I wished that I had adults who I really connected with in my life outside of my family. And perhaps that's why I've tried to become an adult who, um, who doesn't try to enact authority or maintain really rigid definitions of what it means to be a teenager and what it means to be an adult, but instead try to treat high schoolers with like agency and authority and people with good ideas and people who might know things that I don't know and vice versa. So I, yeah, I'm not sure a hundred percent where that came from, but I do know that it feels really urgent to me. Yeah. How do you balance that with the fact that it's, as a teacher, it is just made so clear just how little they know and how much you have to fill in those gaps. Like essentially how, even though I always tell people this, like what makes the, what makes my job amazing is the fact that kids and like my students can be amazing. What makes it hard is that they can be utter and complete numbskulls. Yeah, Yeah, they really can. God, they, sometimes they just kill me. My ninth graders with their endless, like asking me to repeat instructions that I've said five (laughs) minutes ago. That's something that's really been bothering me these days. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean... It's true. It's, it's easy to get discouraged. And you see it a is. lot of teachers who are discouraged. And we all have every right to be discouraged at certain points. But it's it's a matter of like, how do you not make that your default? Yeah. And how do you constantly go back to, no, 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 they're actually usually amazing. And they're yeah. usually wonderful, but they're just not being amazing right, as right now. <laughs> as opposed to being like, oh, no, they're usually awful. And wow, they were actually good today for a change. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was just thinking about what I would say and then I was thinking that you and I probably sound so young and naive and like deeply optimistic to educators who've been doing this for like 30 years and are exhausted. Right. But right, right. I guess I guess where I always go back to is that I don't really believe that um, that the information or the content that I think is what my students need to know most might not actually be the thing that they need to know most. So, you know, I can walk into a classroom with an agenda, but I also, like, they might have something else that they needed to get from that text or from that writing assignment that I didn't even consider that might be there. Yeah. And so in order to, re- to reach that knowledge, what I think needs to happen in a classroom is that instead of trying to lead them towards what you want them to know, you provide just, like, the, the little bit of nudging toward what it is that they might then get to on their own. Um, And that involves a great deal of stepping back from your own agenda, which I think is really hard for a lot of us. But um, yeah, learning how to be a facilitator who's really just maybe posing just one or two of the right questions that can then take them down a track because they, it's not that they don't know a lot. It's that they don't yet know what 
we want them to know. Right. <sighs> yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. Yeah, and I'm I'm also struck by what you said about yeah, the fact that we are like two very young teachers mm-hmm. who are talking about this way and that even like that's going to come up a lot i think in this podcast is you know just with my being the host of i have such like a narrow experience mm-hmm. uh, as an educator and a narrow set of experiences but i think there is some a lot of value to just us and our status as 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 millennial teachers and i think We're bridges that, between that the generation of kids and like adulthood yes yeah exactly well and just we have spent a long time like being told you know just so so much about our generation like so many of these like Mm -hmm. you know millennial memes um, yeah (laughs) and i think kind of pushing back against that and i've always been like very allergic to just those generalizations about young people um about like technology and like the role that it plays and i think just having like we really i think navigated that because there was just like such a, a moment of change um, and there was like a big response to that moment of change that I, I feel like we might be more resistant to mm-hmm. those kinds of general, generalizations about our students. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I don't know. Or maybe that will change in 10 years and we'll be, we'll and be, we'll old, be, we'll be lawning, lawning our yeah. kids down when they get off our lawns. Yeah. No, I mean, I think I have a lot of colleagues who I work with who have been in education for 10 years or more who still do have a lot of like wonderful hope and optimism about their students. So that's always good to see. And I just really admire people who've been trucking along the road of being a teacher for years because it's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. And who've chosen not to phone it in. Right. Whatever that means. Yeah. (laughs) Um, What is something that you have either repeatedly told yourself throughout your time as an educator um, or something that you feel that you constantly have to remind yourself um, or like a favorite piece of advice that you've received mm. from another teacher or something like that? I feel like I had a really good answer to this and I've lost it. Um, to me, I think the process of um, teaching and caring so much about teaching can be really exhausting. And the thing that comes to mind right now that I've had to sort of remind myself is is something really basic, but it's like you're doing a good job and just showing up every day for these kids is enough. I think that's I think that's like kind of when it when it comes down to it, the thing that I've said to myself the most or like had to say to myself the most. Yeah. Cuz it's really hard to show up every day. And I think the like being present part of that, the showing up and not just like being there and putting together lessons, but like being there and really paying attention to what is going on is more important than any lesson I could deliver. So I have to remind yeah. myself of that too. That's great. Yeah, I'm I'm a big I'm a big like self care person, and I really don't think that I can do my job well if I'm not taking care of myself. Um, and so I'm really big on like surrounding myself with people who will affirm me even when I can't. And making sure that I get enough sleep and eat enough food because, like, I don't think people don't realize how emotionally draining and how much emotional labor teachers do. Yeah, I think that's safe to say. Mm -hmm. One of the many amazing things that you are doing as an educator is you have a really, really incredible podcast. Oh, thank um, you. Called The Cobblecast. Can you talk a little bit about? that yeah so it's called the Copplecast, which is um my last name Copplecam, cleverly remixed with uh your name is so good for that oh kind of it's stuff. so good 
Actually, the, the reason the podcast started is not because I had a great idea for a podcast, but because one of my students, Henry, was like, Miss Copplecam, you should start a podcast called The Copplecast. And I was like, oh my God, that's brilliant. Now I have to come up with an idea for a podcast. Um, and it's Copplecast cast spelled with a K, obviously, um, right? because Copplecam is spelled with a K. Um, so yeah, so Henry said that, and then I have this brilliant student, Mark, who is a senior, um, who I don't teach because I teach ninth and 11th grade, but he was my student last year. Um, and then left about a third of the way through the school year because he got cancer. And so I didn't get to teach him for the remaining, um, the remainder of the year. And he's great and has made a full recovery, which is awesome. And came back to school this year and he had a teaching assistant period and ended up becoming my teaching assistant, which has been so much fun. But so we workshopped it and kind of figured out the concept for the Copplecast. And it was born out of the reactions that I get from people when I tell them that I'm a high school, a high school teacher. Actually, I just got one today. Um, I met, <laughs> I, I ran into somebody I knew and they were with a friend and they, she asked me what I did. And I said, oh, I teach high school English. And, you know, one of many kind of stock responses that I get is, oh, wow, I could not do that. And that's actually pretty tame. A lot of times people will be like, oh my God, ew, why? Or like, ugh, teenagers are terrible. So Mark and I kind of talked about that and, and born out of that idea was like showcasing the things that the teenagers we know care about and do that are really amazing. And that doesn't mean like, you know, we have a really, we have a, a culture, I think in America that tries to always have the amazing individual or like the kid who's doing the really special, unique things. But that's not what Mark and I wanted to focus on. We wanted to focus on like, you know, our student, my student Daniel, who is brilliant at video games and can like talk about them in the most articulate and incredible way and like do critical analysis of video games or like, you know, talking to somebody about their political beliefs and how that plays into their everyday experience as a student. And like these things that are easy to not maybe access or understand about teenagers, but that they all have all these amazing layers and things to bring to the table. So our, our, Catchphrase is authenticity always. Um, it's all about listening to young people, which coincidentally has really come into the spotlight too with all the activists from Parkland. Um, so we found a lot of overlap there as well. That's awesome. Yeah, it's been really fun. And the conversations just blow me away every time that we sit down to do They them. blow me away as well. I always, I love listening. Um, Thanks, I, I think that the, just the conversations are incredible uh, I'm, and I'm amazed by yeah by the things that these these kids are saying yeah and that's the, the, I guess that's sort of like I want people to be amazed by the things that they're saying but I also don't want people to be amazed by the things that they're saying because I want everyone to have experiences um, talking to teenagers that make them realize that like teenagers know so many things yeah you know? absolutely and that's and I think in a lot of ways um, and I, I've communicated this to you mm -hmm. off <laughs> off off mic um, <laughs> behind the scenes. Well, just that when, yeah, when, when I look at well, a lot of the stuff you're doing, I, I find myself humbled as an, an educator. Um, and when I, like when I was listening to these conversations, I was also humbled as an educator because I thought like, I, I like to think of myself as someone who's doing this work as well. Yet I still find myself like surprised that these kids are speaking so, you know, in such an articulate fashion or yeah. passionate about these things. And it's like, no, I know that, like I know better. But it just yeah. highlights how rarely we see just normal everyday, whatever that means, uh, kids just like being given a voice to just talk about 
what they're passionate about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're exactly right that it is, it's not about them not having the voice. It's about them not having the space to, yeah. to use that and to really engage with the things they want to engage with. Yeah. Well, you were giving them that platform and that's pretty incredible work. Oh, thank you. Um, subscribe, rate, and review. We're on iTunes and SoundCloud. <laughs> yes, absolutely do that. I, I have done that. It's not in my in my name, uh, but I, I have done that as well. So. Well, when your podcast is famous, then thankfully you'll send all of your listeners over to my podcast. I mean, that's podcast. the idea. That's the that's idea. What, that's what we want. We can only hope. Um, okay, <laughs> so I have a little, I have a challenge for you. Uh-oh. If you are up for it. <laughs> oh, no. Uh <laughs> Um, this is actually a good time to do this after, after I've spent so much time talking about what a great uh, educator you are. Um, <laughs> what I want you to do is essentially like pitch yourself as an educator or describe yourself as an educator, describe your essence. And I want you to do it in under 30 seconds. So I'm going to throw a clock. I don't up. even know what amount of time that is. Okay. Well, I will. I have a. I have a clock for you. So I'm going to okay. put 30 seconds on the clock. Um, and uh, are you ready? Okay. Okay. And three, two, one, go. Um, I show up. I listen to kids. I try not to take myself too seriously. And I think that authenticity plays a huge role in who I am as an educator. Um, I love writing and reading and teaching about those things, but. Um, the interpersonal stuff that happens in the classroom is always going to be foremost in my in my teaching philosophy. Wow, I'm not even at 30 seconds yet. This you is amazing. Um, and also, I really like what I do, which is awesome. Very nice. That wasn't so bad. <laughs> no, I could have kept going or maybe done it in less time. I well, don't know. Well, you might be happy to hear that I'm actually going to ask you to do it again, but this time I'm going to ask you to do it in 10 seconds. Ah, okay. I mean, be careful what you wish for. You just asked to do it in less time. So here you have it. All right, are you ready? Wait, so I'm describing myself as a teacher again. You're, yeah, you're doing the same exact thing, but in 10 seconds. <laughs> I just had to clear. <laughs> yeah, 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 sorry. Um, great, 10 seconds on the clock. You're starting in three, two, one, go. I care a lot about everything I do, and I work really hard to make my students care just as much about everything that they do. Piece of cake. Piece Nailed of cake. it. Yeah. Crushed now it. I want you to do that again. Backwards. Backwards. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, in Spanish. Uh, no, I want you to uh, describe your essence as a teacher in one single solitary word. That's easy. I've already been throwing it around. Um, authenticity. There you go. That's great. I love that. I love that. Um, great. Well, thank you so much for talking with me, Sarah. Thank you for having me on. Once again, uh, listen to the Cobblecast, subscribe, rate, review, say wonderful things. And uh, yeah, thanks again, Sarah. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you once again to Sarah for her time and her generosity in speaking. This podcast was created and hosted by me, John LeMay. Our associate producer is Emily Moeller. Our cover art is by Katie Cooper. And our theme music is You Need a Visa by Really From. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll join me next week for another episode featuring another teacher and another story.